You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Matthew tonight, so you can turn to the book of Matthew with me. Uh, In two weeks, uh, I'm going to begin a study on the book of Psalms, and we're going to take one psalm a week. So you just do the math. We'll be in the Psalms for a while, but they are rich, and uh, I think you will enjoy that. But in the meantime, I'm going to just share some some thoughts uh, from my here journals. Uh, if you are familiar with our D groups, a lot of what we do in D groups is we share from what God is teaching us uh, from our here journals, and here stands for uh, highlight explain, apply, and respond. And so as you're reading a passage of Scripture, you highlight the passage you're focusing on. Then you explain it in your own words. I have a little journaling Bible I do this with. And then you write some application. What does this verse mean for my life? How should I uh, let this verse affect the way that I live or think or, or uh, whatever? And then the R is for respond. How am I going to respond in light of what this passage says? And so we get together in our D groups and we share what God's been teaching us in our here journals. And so the passage that I'm going to share with you tonight comes from one of my here journal entries. Now, I've fleshed it out since then. I've, I've put some study into it. But, but uh, my first encounter with this passage in terms of God speaking to me was just, uh, just recently as I was uh, practicing the discipline of the here journal. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew Chapter 8. So you can go and turn there with me. We'll begin reading specifically in verse uh, 5. Just a quick reminder uh, registration for our marriage ministry banquet is ongoing. It will be on Valentine's night, February 14th, 6 o'clock, in our Christian Life Center on the backside of the campus. So just be aware that that is uh, coming up and you are welcome to be there. Uh, there's no age limit. Uh, you can be married 49 days or 49 years, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever situation you're in, and you're welcome to come. We have a, a speaker coming in. He's a friend of mine. He pastors over in, in Pensacola, and we have a, a, a great meal planned for you, and it'll be a, a, just an encouraging time to think about your marriage. Another thing we, we want to do in that uh, banquet is we want to just briefly take some time to share with you some upcoming opportunities for marriage enrichment. We want to talk to you about some things our church is going to offer in more intentional ways. So some classes we're going to offer, uh, counseling options. We're going to talk some about marriage mentoring, trying to uh, connect uh, maybe some more seasoned couples with some younger couples for some coaching and mentoring. So we're going to kind of kind of share some of that with you at the banquet as well. Just to let you know, these are some resources that we are putting in place because we want to encourage you uh, in the area of marriage. So if you want to register for that, you can go to our church website, you can go to our Facebook page, and there's a link there that you can uh, click on. Uh, this will be You'll be reminded of this coming up uh, on Sunday as well. 
So go ahead and get registered. When you click on the link, you can pay through that link. You can also let us know if there are any child care needs. Child care will be provided. And so we want you to, to come and, and be a part of that. So that's coming up on February 14th. Speaking of this weekend, I want to ask you to pray for me and for Claire. Uh, I'll be in Mississippi this weekend uh, preaching a revival. And uh, it's been on the books for a while now and excited. And the, the pastor I'm preaching for is a young man that I mentored. And my last church sent out to start a new church. This is a church plant from the church that I used to pastor. And so I'm going to this church plant and preaching uh, Sunday through Tuesday. I'll be, I will be here next Wednesday, Lord willing. So just letting you know that. But um, I just want to ask you to pray for the revival. The, the, type, the, the theme of the, the revival is renew. We're talking about renewing our commitment to Christ. And so pray that God would, would use me, give Claire and I safe travel. Probably want to pray for my dad. He's coming in to watch the kids and the dogs. So, uh, yeah, pray for dad. Pray hard for dad. Um, he doesn't. He has no idea how busy he's about to be for um, for four days. But uh, he's coming in, and uh, just just pray for us. Uh, now, the the good part of that is with with me being out is you uh, have a guest speaker on Sunday, and it will be our very own Tommy Bowden. Coach Tommy Bowden will be preaching for us. He and Linda are members here, and he's preached for me before. But he's going to preach. He's always does a great job and encourages and challenges. So you want to be here to hear. Um, coach speak uh, this uh, this Sunday, so excited about that. So lots of good stuff going on. Busy, 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 uh, but all uh, good things. Busy for the Lord. So keep that in mind. Look with me in Matthew chapter eight. Matthew chapter eight. I want to pose and then answer this question: What amazes God? What amazes God? That's a pretty important question. And the Bible actually tells us of a reality that amazed Christ during his time on the earth. So I want to know what that is, because that's a pretty significant thing, that Christ was amazed by something. And I want to show you what that is. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. This is near the beginning of the, the public ministry of Christ. It says... When he had entered Capernaum, which was his hometown, it's kind of an adopted hometown. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. So a little bit of detail right here. This centurion was Roman, a Roman soldier in charge of a lot of soldiers. And it it just reminds us that he's a Gentile, not a Jew. Centurion came forward to him, to Christ, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servants will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Notice that, Jesus marveled. That word means to be amazed, to be filled with wonder. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have, notice that word, believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I think it's significant that in this text, Jesus marvels. There's something that captures his attention and causes him to be amazed. And the context tells us what this is. This is Jesus being amazed by the faith of a Gentile Roman soldier. That's what he is amazed by. Uh, This is the only time the verb thomazo, which is translated marveled there in uh, verse 10, is uh, used uh, to speak of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Normally it's used to speak of other people's reaction to Jesus. So it, the word marveled or amazed is used of other people seeing Jesus perform miracles, and they're amazed. They're, they're in awe and wonder at seeing Jesus uh, perform these, these uh, miraculous things. But in this text, it's Jesus who is amazed by a Gentile soldier. The only other time this word, the matzo, is applied to Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, it says Jesus is amazed at people's unbelief. So there's a time he's amazed at people's faith. There's a time he's amazed that people lack faith in who he is and how he works. But in this text... Uh, Jesus is amazed by the Roman centurion's faith. So if you look there in your notes, the first blank, great faith, great faith, captures God's attention and gains God's approval. Great faith captures God's attention and gains God's approval. Now you say, where are you getting that from, that great faith captures God's attention? Well, it's right here in the text. Jesus is amazed. But where are you getting it from when you say that great faith uh, gains God's approval? Well, hold your place, but turn it really quickly to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the famous Hebrews Hall of Faith, where the writer of Hebrews points to some Old Testament examples of faith. Look what it says in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was translated directly into heaven without dying. Pretty cool if you're Enoch, right? Also happened with Elijah, the prophet. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So what was it about Enoch that pleased God? We'll keep reading. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the implication is, Enoch's faith pleased the Lord. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. So Hebrews 11 is clear that that faith gains God's approval. He was pleased with the faith of Enoch. And so Matthew 8 Jesus is amazed. It captures his attention, the faith of this Roman soldier. And this, this faith, this great faith, also gains the approval of God. Faith is a big deal in the Christian life. And I want to share with you the first part of a book that I've been reading as I've been studying this. Uh, it's by a, um, 
uh, an evangelist who's now with the Lord named Ron Dunn. Anybody ever heard Ron Dunn preach? Have you ever heard Ron Dunn preach? He was all over the country at one time. When I was um, kind of beginning my ministry days, my pastoring days, he was kind of in the twilight of his um, ministry, still doing some, some preaching. Uh, but he was a, a, a really well-known Bible teacher. And he, he often talked about the issue of faith. So I want to read you just a couple pages of this book. Forgive me for doing this. Kind of story time with Pastor Wade, okay? Um, but but it, it's so good, and it, and it kind of sets the stage for what, what I want to talk to you about concerning great faith. He writes, Salvation is like a house built beside a broad and busy highway. Like everyone else, I was born on that highway and was spending my life following it to its destination. At first, the trip had been exciting and almost effortless, the constant flow of the crowd carrying me along. But the farther down the road I got, the more difficult things became. My original joy had dissipated. I noticed that my fellow travelers rarely laughed anymore, and their occasional smiles seemed forced. The backpack I had been issued at the beginning of my journey had grown heavier each day, and I was now permanently stooped from its weight. Worst of all, I had been overtaken lately by an unexplainable fear of reaching the end of the highway. One day, my attention was drawn suddenly to the side of the highway to a magnificently constructed house. Over its narrow front doors, a sign silently announced in bold red letters, Whosoever will may enter and find rest. I don't know how I knew it, but I realized that if I could reach the inside of this beautiful house, I would be saved from the highway and its destination. Pushing my way through the mass of indifferent travelers, I broke clear of the crowd and ran up the steps to the front door. But it was locked. Perhaps it's only stuck, I thought, and tried again. It refused to open. I was confused. Why would someone put up a sign inviting people in and then lock the door to keep them out? Not knowing what else to do, I refused to return to the highway. I pounded on the door, shouted for someone on the inside to open it, and tried to pick the lock, but it was useless. Suddenly, a voice spoke my name, and I spun around. It was the builder of the house. He placed in my hand a key on which was carved one word, faith. Turning back to the door, I inserted the key in the lock, twisted it, heard a reassuring click. The door swung open. I stepped across the threshold. Immediately, my backpack fell from my shoulders. My back began to straighten like a wilting flower, reaching for the sunlight. And from deep within me, my soul breathed. A sigh of relief as an extraordinary sense of peace and well-being wrapped itself around me. The builder of the house welcomed me to my new home, explaining that everything in the house was now mine to enjoy. This was the house that grace had built and faith was the key. And so, obviously, the house here is a picture of salvation and faith gets you into uh, the house. You, you gain access to salvation by faith in Christ. So that's, that's a, a pretty... Standard metaphor, key, faith is the key that unlocks the door. But let me, let me just read what he, what he says next. Surveying my new surroundings, I saw that the house of salvation was a house with many rooms, and I was only in the foyer. Across the way was a door marked, Answered Prayer. Next to it was another that said, Daily Victory. And next to it, Every need supplied. Those are important doors, aren't they? Answered prayer, daily victory, every need supplied. The row of doors, each promising some spiritual blessing, stretched endlessly throughout the house. The discovery of those other rooms puzzled me. 
For I failed to mention that the foyer in which I stood was jammed with people. It seemed that everyone who entered the house stopped in the foyer, never advancing beyond it, as though the foyer were the entire building. This was little better than the highway. Couldn't they see that there was more to the house of salvation than the foyer? Surely the builder intended every room to be occupied. Hadn't he said that everything in the house was ours to enjoy? I, for one, had no desire to spend my life standing in a foyer. This was my father's house. I was his child. All he possessed was mine. I went to the door, marked answered prayer. Grabbed the knob. And twisted. It was locked. I went to the next door and the next and the next. All were locked. But this time I didn't try to pick the lock or knock the door down. I remembered my encounter with the front door and knew you had to have a key. Although I'd been in the house only a short time, I'd somehow managed to accumulate a large number of keys. Rummaging through my collection, I selected one tagged, doing your best, and tried it. It didn't fit. Nor did the key of religious activity. The key of sincerity proved useless. Next I tried the key of tithing. He puts in parentheses, I was getting desperate. But it was as powerless as the others. I was beginning to understand why the foyer was so crowded. Almost done. And then I heard a familiar voice. It was the builder of the house. Child, he said, do you remember the key I gave you to enter my house? Yes, I remember. What was it? Why, it was the key of faith, I answered. The key of faith, he said, is a master key that unlocks every door in the house. Let me read it again. The key of faith is a master key that unlocks every door in the house. That was the greatest discovery of my life. Faith is the master key of the Christian life. From start to finish, salvation is by grace through faith operation. Everything we get in the Christian life, we get by grace through faith. Grace makes it available. Faith accepts it. Grace is God's hand giving. Faith is man's hand receiving. Faith possesses what grace provides. Grace is God's part. Faith is man's part. It is our positive response to God's gracious offer. Last sentence. Everything God demands of man can be summed up in one word. Faith. That was a helpful metaphor for me to think through. And I've certainly seen elements of that in my own Christian life and in the lives of those that I've pastored. We, we, we step into the house of salvation by faith. We're saved. We know Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We're going to heaven when we die and we celebrate our salvation, but we don't go anywhere else in the house. We don't open the door to all the, the doors, to all the different blessings God has for us because we leave faith behind after we enter the house. And we don't realize that faith is an ongoing reality for the Christian life. That's why we need to study people like this Roman centurion who exercises great faith. So we can learn from it and live that out in our daily life. So let me, let me define faith for you. Let me define this. I don't know where this... Uh, I don't know if this is original with me. This comes from my study of Hebrews 11. I preached through Hebrews years ago. Um, I might have gotten it from somebody else. I don't know. Nothing new under the sun. But this is, this is kind of my working definition of faith. Faith is taking God at his word and directing your life accordingly. So faith is taking God at his word, believing what God says, taking God's word seriously, 
and then aligning your life with what he says. That's what faith is. Ron Dunn goes on to say in this book, faith is an affirmation. It's saying what God says is true, but it's also an act. It's, it's, it's belief in action. You believe something to a degree that you're going to do something uh, in conjunction with what you say you believe. So faith is taking God at his word and directing your life accordingly. If you read Hebrews 11, all the different examples he gives, you know, Enoch and Abraham and Moses and Rahab, these different examples he gives in Hebrews 11 of great faith, if you read their story, it's them taking God at his word and directing their life accordingly. So, if great faith amazes the Lord, if great faith captures his attention and great faith gains his approval, then I want to I live that out, don't you? I want to be a person of, of ever-increasing faith. So if we look in uh, the text uh, tonight, we're going to see five mindsets for great faith. Five mindsets you need to have, I need to have for great faith. Then we're going to talk about two applications, and then I'm going to close with a question. All right? So five mindsets... Two applications and a closing question, which I hope will challenge you because it certainly has challenged me as I've studied this. Mindset number one for great faith. I need you. I need you. Look back with me in verse 5. When it entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So this Roman centurion has an issue. He has a servant. Uh, ostensibly, he's close to this servant. He cares for him. He loves him. And he, he wants him to be healed from his paralysis. Now, the Bible doesn't give us indication as to what, the, what caused the paralysis, what his exact condition was, but it's very serious, very critical. Uh, the, the, the centurion had probably tried uh, going to people in his area that perhaps practice medicine, and, and no one could help this, uh, this servant of the centurion. So he comes to Jesus. He hears that Jesus is in the area. It says he came forward to him. And notice that word, he's appealing to him. He, he comes to Christ appealing. He's come with urgency, with, with fervency. He wants to see his servant healed. And so implied in this text is, is the centurion's heart is, I need your help. Jesus, I need you. I need you to heal my servant. So this first mindset, I need you, the key word is dependence. Dependence. That we live in an attitude of dependence upon the Lord. Listen to me. If you're not dependent upon the Lord, you don't need faith. Because you're basically saying, I'll handle it myself, right? I don't need any help. And so only dependent people will be people of great faith. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves, even in the Christian life, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, just trying to make it our own strength and wisdom, and, and we kind of we design life to operate in a way that we're comfortable and we're satisfied and we can keep the ball rolling and we don't really need faith. We kind of got it handled, right? Now, there's moments where things spin out of control, and it's a reminder, hey, I don't have it handled. Which, by the way, maybe that's one of the reasons God lets things spin out of control sometimes. 
to shake us from our, from our self-sufficiency, right? And in this text, the, this Roman centurion, I mean, that was a very important position. It had hundreds and hundreds of men under his command. He was elevated to that position of leadership. And, and here he's saying, I need some help. I need you. The key word is dependence. Here, here, here's what I've learned in my own life. And this is just kind of a small indicator of this. But, but I've noticed that songs, Christian songs, worship songs that express dependence upon the Lord have come to mean more and more to me. Songs like, I need thee every hour, or I need you. We, we sing a, a, a newer song uh, recently called Same God, and the, the verse is, Oh God, my God, I need you. And I know when I'm singing that, I'm, I'm, it resonates with what's going on in my life. I guess the, the older I get and the more I see, the more I understand how needy I am. And it is that dependence upon the Lord that serves as a precursor to faith. Because again, if you don't think you need him, you're not going to have to exercise any faith in his presence. So the first mindset for great faith is, I need you. The second mindset for great faith is this. I'm unworthy for you to act on my behalf. Look in verse 5. Um, or actually look in verse, uh, verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus says, I'll come heal him. I mean, he just comes right out and says it. No convincing it. I'll, I'll come heal him. But look how the centurion responds. His reply here is, is interesting. He says, Lord... I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, we don't know what kind of information the Roman centurion had about Jesus at this time. People were talking about him. And he'd heard enough about Jesus to know, well, no one else can help my servant. So I think he can. I've heard enough about him to know I can go to him and ask him for help. And he knew enough about him to realize... He is other than me. Maybe he sensed Jesus' deity. Maybe he sensed his power. But he understood. I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. I'm unworthy for you to act on my behalf. Key word, grace. The centurion understood Jesus, if you do anything for me, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'm coming with humility, knowing that if you act on my behalf, it's, it's grace. It's grace. This is important. I, I've, I've kind of gotten away from it a little bit, for, but for years I would I'd get home and I'd be tired. It'd be kind of at night, kids would be in bed, and I'd kind of surf through the channels, and I'd stop on these religious programming channels, and I'd watch these crazy preachers and heretics, and I'd always get mad, and Claire would say, why are you watching it? And i said, I don't know. And I'd watch them and get mad and, and uh, fuss about it a little bit. And Claire like, just stop watching. I don't watch as much anymore. But, but I used to watch these, these, these folks and uh, their shenanigans and uh, their heresy. It was just awful. Um, but often you would see them, you, you would see them, Almost commanding God. God, cast this demon out. Heal this person. And, and, and this, this tone, this, this, this idea that God is, is, is here to serve me. 
And it always made me cringe. Here in this text, this centurion's a really important guy. But notice his, his humility. I, I don't deserve you to even come under my roof. If you do anything, Jesus, it is grace. You know why that's important? Because the Bible says that God draws near to the humble but resists the proud. So if you think you are going to get God to act on your behalf and you are full of pride and hubris and arrogance, I don't think you should expect God to move in your life. We can learn from the humility of this centurion. Number three, third mindset. I know you have all power at your disposal. Look what he says in verse 8. I love this. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Don't you love this centurion's absolute certainty or, or confidence in the power of Christ? You don't have to come to my house. Say the word. If you just say the word, he'll be healed. He knew something of the amazing power of Christ. Key word here is possible. Possible. When it comes to God, nothing is impossible. Amen? Look over, hold your place, but look over in Mark 9 with me very quickly. Mark 9. Kind of a similar passage. Mark chapter 9, this is uh, Jesus healing a, a man's son from demon possession. And look what it says in uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 23. Mark chapter 9, verse 23. Well, back at verse 21. Jesus asked his father, whose boy was possessed by a demon... How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now imagine the, the desperation of this father. I mean, you know how you love your kids. And think about him seeing this, this boy possessed by a demon, throwing him in the fire, trying to destroy his life. He's helpless. He's desperate. He said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can. I'll always love that. If. You understand who you're talking to? Then Louise says next in verse 23. All things are possible for one who what? Believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to, to, to grasp your power. Help me to grasp the, the idea that, that nothing is impossible with you, God. Nothing is impossible with you, Jesus. And I believe the Roman centurion back in Matthew 8 had that same mindset. Just say the word. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. Mindset number four for great faith. I know that you call the shots. Look what it says in verse 9. This is fascinating. He says, you can just say the word, my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, to my servant, do this, he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
this Roman centurion, this soldier, he gets authority, right? Because he was in the, the hierarchy of, uh, of the Roman army. He understood that it all starts with the emperor, and then there's an organizational structure, and, and he knew he was somewhere in that organizational structure. And when those over him told him what to do, he had to do it. And when those under him were told to do something by him, they had to do it. That's how the Roman army worked. And so the key word here is authority. He's saying, he's saying if I am a man who understands authority, then you, Jesus, you understand authority. You're a person of authority. All you got to do is speak the word, and whatever you want to happen is going to happen. Whatever you want to fall in place is going to fall in place. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, writes this about this idea of authority. From the perspective of the Roman centurion, all authority belonged to the emperor and was delegated. Therefore, because he was under the emperor's authority, when the centurion spoke, he spoke with the emperor's authority, and so his command was obeyed. This self-understanding the centurion applied to Jesus. Precisely because Jesus was under God's authority, God the Father, he was vested with God's authority so that when Jesus spoke, God spoke. To defy Jesus was to defy God. And Jesus' word must therefore be vested with God's authority that is able to heal sickness. Now listen to this. The greatness of this man's faith was not merely that he believed Jesus could heal from a distance, even though that's great faith. But it was in the degree to which he had understood that Jesus spoke with God's authority and as God himself. So it's not only the fact that God, Jesus, you can heal, you're powerful, but Jesus, you call the shots. You're the authority here. So there's no question that if you want this to happen, it's flat going to happen. That's mindset number four. So... Mindset number one, I need you. Mindset number two, I'm unworthy for you to act on my behalf. Mindset number three, I know you have all power at your disposal. Mindset number four, I know that you call the shots. Mindset number five, here it is, I believe. I believe. By the way, those five things came straight out of, straight out of my here journal. Just my time alone with God, just kind of jotting things down in the margin. And, and the fifth mindset for great faith is, I Believe. Key word here is faith. And look what it says in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, truly I, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. There it is. I tell you, many will come from east and west and, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, he's saying, the people that ought to know better, the Jews, because I came through the Jews, I'm the Jewish Messiah, a lot of them don't get it. They don't understand who I am. They don't follow me and worship me as Savior and Lord and King. But there are many who are outside of the family of the Jews, who are Gentiles, they're going to come from east and west, and they get it. That's, that's his point. They've exercised faith. They believe in me. And he goes on to say in verse 13, To the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have, what's the word? Believed, I love this, the servant was healed at that very moment. Wow, what a story. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to do what you've asked me to according to your belief. According to your faith. And so the final aspect of this mindset is the centurion says, I believe. I believe you can do this. I'm asking you to do it. I'm asking you to heal. And, and, and that's what Jesus did. 
Now, there's another time that Jesus is amazed by someone's faith. And it's found over in Matthew chapter 15. It's the Syrophoenician woman, another Gentile. When she comes begging him to heal her daughter. And Jesus puts up some, some roadblocks to kind of test her faith. And he's saying, you know, he says some different things to her to kind of to kind of push her away, you know, and she keeps she keeps imploring Jesus and coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, This is this is faith. This is this is real faith in this Syrophoenician woman. So two of the, the examples of great faith in the New Testament are both Gentiles. Fascinating. I believe. Now, let me give you two quick applications and a closing question, and we'll be through. Application number one. I think this speaks to your confidence in the promises of God. So you say, Pastor Wade, where do I exercise this faith, this, this great faith? How, do, you know, how, how does this play out in my day-to-day life? I think part of it is taking God at His word. Right? Reading the promises of God and believing them and living your life accordingly. So just talk to me for a minute. What are some, what are some of the promises of God found in Scripture? You can talk now. What's that? I'll be with you always. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark it is, no matter how distant God seems, and there are times God seems distant, right? We can't sense him because things are so hard. But in those moments, faith says, God told me he's here. And I'll believe that God is with me in this moment. What else? What are some other promises of God? God has a plan. He, 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 well, part of that, he works everything together for good, even the bad stuff, for good stuff. He works everything together for the good of those that love him, those called according to his purpose. He has a, a plan, a purpose for our life. We trust that even when we don't understand or, or life seems to take a, a left turn when you wanted to take a right turn and it's a head scratch and you don't get it. You realize, hey, God's in control and he's somehow going to use this ultimately for my good. I, I, that's faith, right? I'm taking God at his word. What else? Presence of God, never leave you nor forsake you. What else? Always faithful, right? He, is that what you said, faithful? And he, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when you're tempted, he always provides a way of escape. That's a promise of God. If you're in a tempting situation, God always gives you a way out. That's a promise. That's faith, believing that. What about promises that are important when we come to the end of our mortality? What are some promises about eternity? gone to prepare a place for you. Jesus told us he's gone to prepare a special place for us in heaven. What's that? Absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord, that the moment you close your eyes for the last time on this earth in death, immediately your spirit will be in the presence of King Jesus. That's a pretty cool promise, isn't it? So the, the, the question becomes, do we really believe that? If we really believe that, when Christians walk through death and mortality and dying, we're going to walk through it with faith, right? Taking God at His word. There, there are promises about answered prayer. We'll talk about that in a moment. There, there, are, all kinds of, there are all kinds of promises of Scripture. And, and I think part of great faith is believing what God says. Taking God at His word and acting accordingly. Which is, here's the second application of great faith. Your prayer life, right? This, 
centurion is asking Jesus for something. How's your prayer life? Does, does, does your prayer life reflect great faith? What are you asking God to do that requires faith? That, that calls for the power of God to be brought uh, uh, to, to your situation? Brought to bear on your situation? Are, are you praying for big things? Are you praying for impossible things? What, what does your prayer life look like? I believe that as we grow in our faith, as we go from faith to great faith, it will be reflected in our prayer life. And to be honest with you, I was really challenged this week. This is my here journal. I'm thinking about it. I was preparing to teach this tonight. I was just really challenged. Does my, does my prayer life reflect great faith? Or if I'm, do I have kind of things just kind of comfortable in my life and just kind of like I want them and, and you know, it doesn't really require a lot of desperation? Or do I want to be used by God, follow Him wherever He leads, do whatever He tells me to do, and ask Him to move on my behalf for His glory in uncomfortable situations, that calls for faith. And so your prayer life, I think, is a, a, real, a real indicator as to where your faith is and if your faith is growing. If our faith is growing, our prayer life will look more and more desperate and it will ask for bigger, more impossible things. When's the, last, when's the last time you prayed for a miracle? You know what a miracle is? A miracle is when something happens that only God can do. That's a miracle. When's the last time you prayed for a miracle? Do you believe God still does miracles? I do. When's the last time you prayed for a miracle? I mean, something supernatural that God has to do. Challenging question, sure, certainly was for me. Which leads to my closing question. I'm going to pose this and, and then we'll wrap it up. Here's the closing question related to what I just said. What are you believing God for? What, are there areas in your life where your faith is being exercised? And by the way, look at me real quick. Faith can grow stronger. Romans chapter 4. When Abraham was waiting on the promised uh, seed, waiting on Isaac to be born, even though he and Sarah were beyond childbearing years. It says that he grew stronger in his faith. He did not waver. His faith was, was, was growing. So our faith can, can grow, it can get stronger, but it's got to be exercised, right? What area of your life are you exercising faith? What are you believing God for? What are you trusting God for? What are you asking God to do? Could it be healing, physical healing for someone or even in your own life? Could it be the spiritual life of a loved one? Maybe someone that's walked away from God or far from God or a prodigal and you're, you're, you're believing God to do something in their life. You're asking God to do something in their life. You believe in God for great things in your church? You asking God to do just mighty, mighty things through this body where this community is shaken with the gospel and the Emerald Coast becomes the hardest place in America to go to hell from? 
Are you believing God for awakening in our nation, for revival? That the tides would turn with all the craziness we see out there? What are you believing God for? Where are you exercising your faith? And if the answer is, well, I'm not really exercising my faith anywhere. I'm just kind of going through the motions, just trying to keep life comfortable as I can. (laughs) Right? Just trying to keep it steady. Then you and I have some work to do, right? we got to think through the reality that God is God. He can do great and mighty things if I will align my need and my faith with who He is. What are you believing God for? Or let me close by saying this. I hope your Christian life is not spent in the foyer. Right? I hope by faith you'll open the door to answered prayer and the door to daily victory and the door to the promises of God. And I hope you'll enjoy growth in trusting God for the realities of life. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.